Welcome to this second episode of Northern Spin with me, Michael Taylor. And me, Chris Maguire. And you may have read, Michael, that Dragon's Den star and social chain co-founder Stephen Bartlett has revealed that his podcast, Diary of a CEO, had a record 10 million downloads in August, which brings us seamlessly on to the performance of our first episode of Northern Spin. I don't know if you've seen the stats yet, Michael, but have we hit 10 million? Well, I don't know, Chris, but what I do know is that we've had very good feedback from right across the north for the first podcast. It's available on Spotify. I think the stats look pretty good. And hopefully it's the start of something really exciting. Yeah, and there's a few comments, if I may, just to draw your attention to. Sean Hines, CEO of Manchester Central, great guy, says, brilliant, the toughers and Vaughan of the Northern political analysis. He knows I like cricket. Thoroughly enjoyable and very novel that Michael comes out of the top speaker of the phone and you, Chris, come out the bottom speaker, which, of course, could be a metaphor for life. Well, maybe, Chris, there is some truth in that. But, um, no, that's really nice of Sean to have said that. I'm really pleased. Viv Parry, who is the FD of Dell Tech Electronics in Leeds, she said it was a great listen. While our mutual friend, Steve Oliver, the CEO of Music Magpie in Stockport, said, fabulous combination, albeit I hope MT, that's me, has locked away Chris's joke book. Seriously, Chris, you are known for your terrible dad jokes. Yeah, yeah Don't thanks. ever change. No, absolutely. That is who you are. If you want to do... If you want to get your joke book out, fill your boots. No, absolutely. And, but I'll be keeping my jokes in the main to Twitter. Um, we've got some other comments as well, actually. Um, Owen Moulton, partner of Dow Schofield Watts, said, well, um, well done both. A great listen. Sensitive, insightful and relevant. Chris Barry, director of Influential Agency and also a journalist, said, flows really well and some really astute observations from both of you. And the last one is from uh, John Quinton Barber, founder and group her CEO at Social, who said, great informative content, content delivered by two trusted voices. Oh, JQB, that's very lovely of you to have said that. It's really good. So thank you. If you have enjoyed the podcast, if you enjoy this one, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify. And when we're on other platforms like Apple, you can leave us a fulsome review as well. But Chris, to the analysis, to the insight, after the huge outpouring of grief, or you could say, the nation being gripped by collective madness with following the death of Her Majesty the Queen. I mean, we were sad about it, but there is an argument to be made that all the problems that occurred that politicians have to turn their hand to, both here in the North and for the rest of the country, haven't gone away just because the Queen's died. And there's a big, big inbox facing Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng and, and the other ministers in her new government. So it's going to be a big week for the Tories now, now the Queen's funeral's out of the way. What do you see at the top of that entry? Yeah, I think you're right, incidentally. I think there's almost a reset. I think it's almost going to be Liz Truss, Prime Minister Mark II, uh, because it's like it's not really happened because the world's been on hold, quite rightly, I think, because of the death of the Queen. Um, I think Liz Truss has got to get back to domestic matters very, very quickly, especially the energy crisis. Her announcement about the energy price guarantee last Thursday was obviously on the same day that the Queen passed away. So that announcement was very much lost in the news. Obviously, she's capped it at £2,500. Um, I think there's precious little time now, um, you know, before these new energy bills come in. And I think we haven't seen any detail about how it's going to be funded. And uh, I think the big issue for me is, is going to be, A, how it's funded and what happens to business. Because I don't think that's been, yeah. I don't think that's been uh, looked at enough. And I'm going to read a quote out, if I may, from yes, Michelle sure. Mullaney, who's the North Business Development Manager at EY. And she said, I quote, I spoke to a manufacturing business today, energy bill, bill going from 11 million to 58 million this year. 
they are going from their best year to concern that they may have to close. So the key for the Prime Minister yeah. is going to be to share quickly how she will support businesses. What's your take on that? Well, I think businesses are genuinely concerned with prices spiralling out of control. There's only so much that they can pass on to consumers or further down their supply chains. If they do that, then that adds to the spiral in inflation that is in danger of going out of control. And I think what the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has to do is grip this as quickly as possible. They've sent a very clear signal that they want to break with existing Treasury orthodoxy by sacking Tom Scholar, who's the permanent secretary at the Treasury. I mean, Chris, this is unprecedented stuff. I mean, short of sacking the governor of the Bank of England, there couldn't be a clearer signal that actually the, the, the government wants to pursue a very, very different line than they have been doing. Effectively, let's not forget, we've had a Conservative-led government for the last 12 years. The sacking of Tom Scholar puts a lot of pressure on Kwasi Kwarteng massively. Um, the analogy I would use with the Tories and their approach is that they've gone into the casino and they've put all their chips on achieving economic growth of 2.5%. So when Kwasi Kwarteng has his fiscal event or his mini budget, whatever you want to call it, you're going to have to see a lot of growth ambition and a lot of genuine initiatives to try to feed the growth. Yeah, I, I, I don't see any trace elements at the moment in any of the announcements that they've made, any of the things that Liz Truss said in the Tory leadership race that gives me any confidence that she's got the ability to better deliver on any of that. It just seems to be you know, re-fighting re all these culture wars. I, I did see a piece in the F FT, I don't know if you saw it, mm. but Kwasi Kwarteng apparently wants to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses. The cap at the moment as it exists, if you earn a million quid a year, like, yeah, right, um, that you can only earn two million in bonuses. Mm. I mean, this is fantasy land. This doesn't affect most people. And it really play, at, you know, in the, in the middle of party conference season, this is just exactly the wrong things the Tories want to be saying. If they want to be work, winning working class voters over to support them, well, they're falling but behind in the polls. What it does, it, it, it plays to the fact that they want to encourage international banks to come to London and they want to make sure there's no restrictions to the amount of money they can earn. Now, the critics would say that what they might do is it might feed irresponsible behaviour, but they would argue it would attract those businesses and feed growth, which is what they want. Yeah, I think it sends a terrible, terrible message about their priorities, but um, there, you know, there should be other priorities. We've also, we're also going to be getting to know different ministers in the government. I think we, well, from my point of view anyway, I, you know, we all grew to loathe people like Grant Shapps for his inept handling of of transport and the railways. We've now got a new Secretary of State for Transport, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. She's got a big challenge in her inbox about the West Coast Main Line and Avanti and the woeful service that has been cut back from three trains an hour to, to, to one. I mean, that's terrible. Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, has written to Anne-Marie Trevelyan saying people couldn't go down to London to see the Queen's funeral. And well, that's it's just not on. Well, I said in the last episode that if Liz Truss wants a quick win in the North, it would be to sort out that uh, Avante situation. Uh, one thing I've done, Michael, is I decided to canvas the views of some of the people who, who follow me for whatever reason. They do, but they follow me on LinkedIn. And I asked them what the priorities of Liz Truss and her government should be. And I'm just going to read out a selection of those. They're all comments from Northern-based businesses. Joe Britton, founder of award-winning business, Pace Development, previously the marketing director at manufacturing organisation EEF, said, as a micro-business, the best thing that could really help 
is prompt payment. It's estimated that over 50,000 small businesses close each year because of late payment practice. We both know what that's like. Jenny Johnson, CEO of My First Five Years, best known probably as the former chief exec of Kids Aloud. Great business. She said, if I had the purse strings after health, it would be education, education, education. I think somebody might nick that line. Starting where I would get the biggest return, early years, then following it all the way through. I think she's right. She's, she's, in Education my should be a priority. I think we should talk about that. We will. At some point. And we may talk about it in this very podcast. Uh, Charlie Holt from the Northeast, from Dynamo Northeast, co chair of Opencast Soft- Software, says war for talent. So politicians need to help invest in colleges, immigration, and leveling up. I, I was at university with Charlie. Were you really? Yeah. He looks a lot younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Darren Coomer, chairman and co founder of Credersi. Is it pronounced Credersi? I have no idea. Okay, he works with Andy Lord, the ex Code Nation uh, chap stop. as well. Chris, stop name dropping. No, sorry. sorry Come, on. Sorry. Come um, on. He says encourage entrepreneurship, create a structure that rewards risk and abolishes IR35. For those people who don't know, IR35 is legislation designed to tackle tax avoidance. It really targets companies that employ contractors. Well, I mentioned this in the podcast last week. There was a report that Matthew Taylor from the RSA did for Theresa May in 2017. That was then followed up with a good work plan. And it was also followed up with an industrial strategy, all of which Boris Johnson just buried under the cover of all oh, this stuff doesn't matter anymore. And yet the whole conversation about productivity, about how we relate to, to each other in the workplace, it's been a massive conversation. There's been the great, res- supposedly the great resignation. There's been, you know, people are supposedly working to rule because they're not engaged with their work anymore. So we need a big policy drive on what the nation's purpose is and what the and, and they're just dithering around. I think really, really good selection of comments from your from your contacts there, Chris. Yeah, the last one I'm going to use is Daisy Whitehouse, managing director of a PR company called Down at the Social, said the biggest challenge is probably going to be balancing clients cutting budgets and staff wanting pay rises. And yeah. I think that's going to be a real, real difficulty. That's those points again, isn't it, about inflation? That, you know, to grip this and keep, keep it under some kind of control. Very good point, Daisy. Now, we're going to have a quick break uh, before we start uh, really delving into some of the issues that matter to you. Michael, you want to talk about universities? I do. So, Chris, I used to work at a university. I was the head of regional affairs at Manchester Metropolitan University until last year. It's, It's a fantastic asset to this country. Did you know... Do, do you know, Chris, out of interest, how many students there are in this country, many of whom will be starting back for the first time, including your daughter? Absolutely. absolutely. If I had any guess, uh, I would say about half a mil. Yeah, that's just the international students. Right. Half a million international students studying at UK universities. The actual number, both postgrads, undergrads, is two and a half million. So it's a phenomenal that, industry it's a, a phenomenal sector that is a lot of pasta and tomato sauce that is <laughs> it's a lot of um, yeah. it's a lot of um traffic cones on statues Absolutely. in the middles of cities and everything but anyway listen chris i did like i said i used to work in public affairs at manchester met i've taught at uclan or the university of central lancashire to give it its proper name up there in preston this is a world leading sector with a turnover of 40 billion pounds a year and yet it constantly gets treated like a political football now i'd be really interested in your take on this both as a parent of an undergraduate student but also with your own connections in the business world Here's what I think are the big issues that we'll be facing. Andrea Jenkins, the new 
university's minister and her boss, Kit Malthouse, who is the Secretary of State for Education. Number one, strikes and low morale of staff inside the sector. The university college union is very militant and they balloted for strike action again. That will then impact on the student experience. Students, of course, who are paying £9,250 a year in tuition fees, plus all their living costs. Um, so there, there will therefore be real issues around their experience, hardship of students, the, um, many of them falling into, falling into debt, having to juggle their work with part-time jobs, not being able to meet their accommodation costs. In a, and then the worst possible outcome of all, which is students dropping out, which is loss of income to the universities and a devastating effect on the life of a young person who's had to, um, to drop out of university and still have to pay back some of that debt they've accrued. And then, of course, there's a big long-term issue which the government have never grasped, which is how can universities be funded long-term with the current funding regime? All we heard during the leadership election was some nonsense from Liz Truss about guaranteeing that A-star students get an interview at Oxbridge. By the way, if that had applied to her, she wouldn't have got an interview, even though she ended up did go, did, did go into Oxford. But my, there you go. My, my eldest daughter, she got, she got A-stars at A-level. She didn't get an interview. Um, didn't get an interview? No, didn't get an interview. And neither my wife or I went to university as well. Um, so so you, do, you do wonder, but... Um, I mean, there's a couple of things that stand out for me. When we speak to businesses in the north and across the UK generally, the key is that the strength of the university really dictates the strength of the business sector because one of the big strengths of Manchester, where we're sitting now with this new backdrop, is the strength of the university scene. And the key is trying to retain those graduates within that, um, within that setup. I know from experience, though, that when we had, the, when we had COVID and uh, the number of virtual lectures was incredible. Uh, and these young people were missing out on that experience yeah. because they were doing everything behind Zoom. I don't think there's going to be much appetite for putting up tuition fees, I'll be honest with you. No, I don't think there is. And they've been frozen for the next two years. One of the debates that the government had was a report by Sir Philip Auger, which actually recommended one of the choices they could adapt would be actually to reduce tuition fees to £7,000. But then how do universities absorb that kind of cut to the, the infrastructure that they've got when they're already telling staff that they can't have pay rises? So it, it is. The other thing universities have to confront is their place, you know, their impact. You, you, made a, you make a really good point there about Manchester and its relationship with its four universities, five if you account some of the boutiques like, like BIM. It's got Salford, University of Manchester where I went, MMU where I used to work, and Salford where our producer James went. Um, but the bigger, bigger point is what's their impact and what's their connection to the strategy, to the vision, to the workforce of the future that these cities need? Are the universities in alignment with that? I think it's a big challenge because in a lot of places, it isn't. Um, one thing I read uh, last week was the fact that a number of students in university students in um, you know, Manchester haven't got any accommodation, so they're going to have to you know, live in yeah. Liverpool, which, which, which in itself defeats the whole university experience. Yeah, I think there's, um, there's obviously a lot more behind that story. And yeah, I think it's shocking. Can you imagine living in, you've got a place at the University of Manchester and you have to live in Huddersfield or Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, It's just yeah. not on, is it? And you've got to get an Uber to get home afterwards. Not good, not good. Um, now we're going to come back after the next break. We've got some uh, absolutely fantastic audience questions. <laughs>
Fantastic. Welcome back. Our first question from our esteemed audience is from a mutual friend of ours, Chris, John Leach, the Managing Director of Winning Mindsets, who asked us, really good question, John, why is Manchester Airport such a world-class bad experience? We can't have a great city with such a rubbish airport. Um, it's worth saying that the ownership model at Manchester Airport is different to pretty much any other airport because obviously two-thirds of it are owned by the 10 local authorities that is, in Chorley. Yeah, munici municipally owned. So when things are going well at the airport, things are going well because you get dividends for the local authorities as well. And it's also worth saying in the last two years, the airport lost circa £700 million during the two years of COVID. So it's had a really, yeah. really difficult period. Yeah, and um, I think, it, didn't they sack a lot of the staff or, or, or let people go who yeah. were on short-term contracts because obviously there were no passengers coming in and out of the airport for them to service. So no. they let them go. And then when obviously when things opened up again, you know, they knew that they were offering services, but they didn't have the infrastructure to support the, air, the airlines from providing that service. Yeah, and Manchester Airport's obviously stands still as well. It's, it's a collection of airports. I think it's East, uh, East the Midlands as well. I, I read a story that they were looking to lose potentially 900 members of staff, but how many they actually lost, I don't know, but they lost hundreds and hundreds of staff. So when the airports reopened and passengers started going back in again, they didn't necessarily have the infrastructure to be able to support that that's what we've seen there, the problems that we've seen. Yeah. I mean, I've flown from Manchester a couple of times. Um, when I landed the last time, they didn't have any uh, you know, ground crew, so you had to wait for an hour. Then you've oh. got to wait for your baggage as well. Not the worst thing in the world, a lot worse things in life, but it's Indeed. the sort of thing that really annoys you. And you're having to turn up three and a half hours before to, 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 to sort of make sure that you catch your flight. I didn't just want this to be about our opinions, though, because what we're trying to do with Northern Spin is provide genuine insight. So what I did is I floated the idea on LinkedIn again, and I asked people what their experience was of Manchester Airport. You're now, not going to read them all no, out, No, I'm not going to read them all out because we've only got half an hour. But what I did is last night I, I did some tallying up, and I broke them down into three sections. I said, how many of the comments were bad? how many were mixed and how many were good 16 of the comments had had over 50 comments 16 comments said manchester airport uh was was really bad comments included worst airport in the world filthy absolute nightmare rather drive to heathrow mm -hmm. i would say 25 of the comments which is around about half were mixed people said they had good experiences and bad experiences it was just uh, the luck of the draw 13 of them were good uh, with three saying it was excellent. So you read these dreadful headlines in publications like the Daily Mail and it looks like the world's going to end at Manchester Airport. Not true. There are lots of, there are lots of positive experiences there, but there's, they're outweighed by the negative experiences. Um, two things stood out for me as well. Although the delays about getting through security and picking up bags were the biggest gripes, a lot of the complaints were actually around the poor customer experience, the expensive parking, the drab appearance of the airport. And the comment that summed it up best for me was from Simon Bin, somebody we both know, managing director, so managing editor of Lad Bible Group, who said, it can be terrible or it can be super quick, but what it undeniably is, is that it's tired. It's not big enough to be fit for purpose or service big routes. Almost every other European airport I've been through in the last decade is bigger, more modern, redeveloped, and just dash, dash, dash. Um, better. You know, better. That was almost like the, uh, you know, Colleen Rooney moment, you know, where he <laughs> unveiled, where he unveiled, um, you know, the culprit. Um, better. What's your take on that? I, I agree with Simon. One thing I will say, to be fair to the staff of Manchester Airport, 
And I've got personal experience of it this week when Rachel took her, my wife, took her elderly parents to the airport for a flight to Spain. Was the staff were just lovely, yeah? Her parents, you know, they needed a special assistance. Um, the signage was poor. The car parking experience is rotten, but the people were just lovely. And when I went earlier this year to Belfast to the community union conference, you know, I had to queue for three hours to get through because they were short staffed. There were only two carousels open to check yourself through, which was nonsense. But actually, the staff kept everyone in good humor. They let you know what was happening. And you kind of, there was that spirit of the blitz thing. And people were really genuinely lovely about it. Every journey I've been on, just to agree with Simon, everywhere I've been, and I kind of went through it as a tally, the worst airport experience is always Manchester compared to Porto, Dublin, Belfast, Helsinki, Copenhagen. I haven't done these in the last month, by no, the way. This is no. over the last five years. The only one I would say Manchester was slightly better was Berlin. But I think the difference there is the fact that but that was an old airport that's since been replaced. I mean, Gary, um, Neville, Gary Neville tweeted about this. He tweeted about his experience at um, Manchester Airport. I, I always think that's a good thing and a bad thing. I think because, you know, in my straw poll of 50 plus people, not every experience was negative, but, but, but people always think it is. Um, what I would say, if you're arriving in Manchester, is that airport an advert for what we know to be a great city in a great region? No, I think it's a poor experience. And most of the things that I dislike myself about it, I do, I do look at it as a, maybe as a journalist or someone who's immensely passionate about Manchester and the North. And I come through it and I try to stand in the shoes of, a, of an international visitor who's stepping out in our city. And when I come out of Terminal 1 and you stand there and you're effectively in a smoking shed with loads of signs saying you've got to queue up for a taxi there or it, it's just not pleasant. And all these things are actually inconvenient and unpleasant by design. The car park, I think the train station access isn't great. The taxi pickup, as I said, I think there's a horrible boozy culture in the terminal as well that encourages people to get absolutely leathered before they get on flights. And the Manchester Evening News newspaper absolutely dines out on the number of stories about people being prosecuted for starting fights or being too legless to get on aeroplanes. The queues. And then, of course, there's a path through the duty-free section of the airport. You try doing that with five kids who all want a Toblerone or a bottle <laughs> of Malibu as you're walking through with your bags to get your flight to your holidays. So, yeah, not great. I'm not, I'm not a fan, but I do really, really have a lot of support and sympathy for the hard-working staff there who've had a, must have had a miserable time. Have you ever bought one of your kids, one of your five kids, one of those table loans for like £30? What, from the, the guilt section at kind of Faro Airport when you're back from a trip with your mates? There's two yeah, I've, done, I've done all of that. Dime bars, everything. There's two things, actually, um, that, that, that I want to mention before we go on to the final topic today. Was I was talking to a couple who were in their 80s, and they've just been to, uh, they've just been aboard for the first time since COVID. And I asked them what their experience was at Manchester Airport, and they said they got there three and a half hours early. They went through security in two hours and 30 minutes. They got on the other side, desperate for a cup of tea. They got hit by a second queue to get a cup of tea. They got to the front of the queue when suddenly it said, we are boarding your flight. Um, so they didn't get their cup of tea. By the time they got on the plane, they said, we were absolutely, we needed a holiday um, because they'd yeah. had such a dreadful experience. I do want to mention one quick thing, actually. And this was, this was I found quite fascinating. For everybody who criticised Manchester Airport, at least one person said how fantastic Liverpool Airport was. Yes, fair point. Yeah, yeah. and they've not got the same sort of long-haul flights. 
Um, but but I thought when I posted this on LinkedIn and I was getting so many positive messages about LinkedIn, the chap in charge of Liverpool Airport said, I'm glad so many people have had great experiences. Now that to me was that little bit extra that made me feel like warm and tingly, but maybe yeah. that's just me. Well, it's an alternative, isn't it? I've, I've only been from Liverpool a couple of times. I did actually go from Blackpool once, but they, that's not operating as a commercial airport, is it anymore? No, 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 no. I went from there once. I got a parking, uh, got a parking ticket. <laughs> um, so we're going to finish with with the Labour Party. It's the uh, Labour Party conference in Liverpool, which you're going to actually uh, at the weekend. And, well, hopefully we'll uh, both go and we'll record an episode of the podcast. And that's the plan. We're going to be there for the next yeah. episode. But I'm uh, there for the duration because that's my job. I work for a Labour group on a local council, so I'll be there going to the debates. I'll be looking forward to Keir Starmer's big speech on Tuesday. How important... If I said, is this a make or break conference for Sir Keir Starmer, how important is this conference to him personally and to Labour's chances of winning the next general election? Now, you have to bear in mind that most people, unlike me and you, think about politics like hardly ever. But party conferences is one of those opportunities where it, it gets on the news. So Keir Starmer's speech, if there's any shenanigans, if there's any kind of infighting, will make the news. And the most important piece of news that swing voters listen to, that actually dictate the tone of the conversation on any given day, is apparently it's on Heart FM in the slot after Amanda Holden's show on a weekday morning. And if, if, if people are talking about politics at that time of day, now at the moment, you know, in the last week, all they've been talking about is the queue and the Queen's funeral and, you know, all the lamentations following Her Majesty's death. But actually, keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on commercial radio news and whether people are talking about it. And if Keir Starmer is going to cut through and he gets on that sort of news, then he might be. I think it's really important, Chris, to give a, an answer. I think it, it's an opportunity, but there are a number of obstacles in his way. Chief amongst it is the trade union disputes and whether he sides with people in his own party or he sides with the public who are inconvenienced by strikes. That's the calculation he appears to be making. But the more people that are going on strike, the more people who have sympathy for those, those who are taking industrial action, I think that puts Keir Starmer in a difficult position. He has to come down one way or another. And there's also likely to be a motion in support of proportional representation or a vote to the or a change to the voting system which is a real shift in labor party policy so keep an eye on those issues we we'll maybe talk about them on future podcasts i think i think one of the important things for uh, Keir Starmer is going to be the visuals of this conference because because you could almost do like he was booed wasn't he yeah. um, you know you could almost do with him having that backdrop this is what i'm up against yeah because if the Labour Party are going to win the next general election, and I would argue that if they don't win this next general election, they're not going to win it um, for Ever. a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, they've been out of power for 12 years. It's going to be a minimum of, of 14 by the time we have this next general election. And I was looking back in the history books uh, and working out what Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party need to do to win the next general election. And I was going back to your hero, um, Tony Blair. What Tony Blair did really, really well is he convinced non-Labour supporters that the Labour Party could be trusted with running the country. And that wasn't something that Ed Miliband and something that, Jeremy Corbyn for different reasons were able to do so if at the end of that conference he walks off after giving his conference speech if he's going to be judged a success it won't necessarily be if he gets a standing ovation from the room which he'll get no doubt you'll be there on your feet cheering as well it will be how much cut through he's got absolutely 
But you say that like it's a revelation that 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 people people don't get this. You have to persuade people who have voted Conservative before to vote Labour. You can't antagonise them. You can't call them scum. You can't say, which many people on the left do. I think it's it's outrageous that it's it's a it's it's a self evident fact, and yet it seems to be. It, it seems to be a mystery to some people. How important is it that the conference is being held in Liverpool? I think it's great. It's great for the city of Liverpool that Labour are going there. I, th- I think you're hinting at the fact that Liverpool is a kind of a, an edgy left-wing city and that Keir Starmer is in many ways going into hostile territory. Am I interpreting that? Well, I think I see it two ways. I think clearly Liverpool is a Labour heartland. I mean, you've only got to look at the, um, you know, the number of MPs, you know, the Labour MPs in Liverpool. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's good for the North. I think it's good for the conference centre there as well to be hosting an event of that magnitude in Liverpool. And it's good for you as well, actually, because you've not got to travel so far no. from, from your home. You can imagine going to Brighton on an Avanti train. <laughs> we can only dream. We can. we can only dream, which might be the slogan for the, uh, the so party just, conference. Just, Chris, really seriously, you've, you've raised some really good points about how important it is that Starmer... Keir Starmer cuts through to, um, to, to the general public. They can only ever do that when Labour has got a compelling vision of the future and an optimistic view of the nation that they want to lead. And again, this, I think this is blindingly obvious political strategy, but it seems to be lost on some people. But when you think back and you look at your history, in 1945, Clement Attlee had a vision of a land fit for heroes after the Second World War that they obviously felt was coming to an end. Um, Harold Wilson had the vision of a white hot heat of the technological revolution, an optimistic country that, you know, and of course, England only ever win the World Cup under a Labour government. And I think Blair was very much caught up in the spirit of cool Britannia, the rise of the creative industries, and a country that was at ease with itself, be it um, how, who people choose to love, because um, obviously they, they made major legislation on gay rights. Um, you know, that sense about the kind of country we wanted to be. And for people to share that vision in middle England, up and down the country, to trust that Labour aren't going to wreck the economy. Now, as, as you said, chaos under Ed Miliband wasn't necessarily the, the message that, they, that, um, that was a winning formula in 2015, as I knew, because I was a candidate in that election. But I also think that Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn painted a picture of a country that they didn't really like. That people that people lived in that they that, that wasn't optimistic. It, they talked the country down. But if actually Keir Starmer can talk about the great things that this country's got that could only be better with stronger leadership, no corruption, no dithering, no mishandling of scandals. If he can show that he's competent and he actually loves and believes in this country, then then it's wide open for him to succeed. Before we wrap up, if if Sir Keir Starmer's people are listening to this podcast, if they're, if they're you know, among the 10 million who might download it this month, I would say to them that when you write your conference speech, the word that's got to come out is hope. And what they've got to say, they've got to say that under a Labour government, and there's so many problems currently that we're facing with the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis and inflation and everything else, if they can deliver hope and they can convince people that under a Labour government it will be better... And that at the end of that conference speech, people feel inspired, he'll have done his job. And it'll, it'll put unsurmountable pressure on Liz Trust to deliver a compelling speech at the, at the Tories. That's good, conference. that's good advice, Chris, from a, uh, presumably you're a Conservative voter, aren't you, normally? Well, as you know, Michael, I'm Conservative. 
with a lowercase c. So I've previously voted for Labour and I've previously voted for the Conservatives as well. What I would say, I've never felt Labour have got business. I've never felt they're business friendly. And I was never going to vote for Labour when Jeremy Corbyn was, uh, you know, was the leader of the party. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm definitely more to the right than you. Okay, no, that's fair enough. That's that's why this podcast has got such good chemistry. Absolutely, to say, don't we? So that's all from me and Chris for the second episode of Northern Spin. I hope you've enjoyed it. You can follow us both on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you to our producers from What Media. The music that's used in this show is New Beginnings by Elliot Taylor, licensed under Creative Commons. And if you like the podcast, please, please, please give us a five star review. Tell your friends, tell your family, in fact, tell your enemies, and please listen to Northern Spin. Give in a voice to the north. <laughs>